just as ripples spread out when a single pebble is dropped into the water, the actions of individuals can have far-reaching effects. Dalai Lama Devil's Dorp, the podcast, is a killer audio creations production in partnership with Showmax for the Showmax original documentary series, Devil's Dorp. This podcast may contain graphic information related to the crimes committed by the perpetrators. Sensitive listeners should take this into consideration. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the views of Killer Audio Creations, Showmax, or their partners. Welcome back to Devil's Door, the official companion podcast to the Showmax original series, Devil's Door. My name is Nicole Engelbrecht, true crime podcaster, freelance writer and audiobook narrator and I'm your guide on this journey through one of the strangest cases South Africa has ever seen. If you haven't yet listened to episode 1, 2 or 3 of the podcast or watched the Devil's Dorp series on Showmax, I highly recommend you do that first. In episode 1, we discussed the religious aspects of this case. In episode 2, we delved into the psychology of the offenders. And in the previous episode, we looked at Marinda Stain's relationship with her children and how she broke the trust that children naturally have in their maternal figures. In this, the final episode, at least for now, of Devil's Dorp the podcast, we discuss the aftermath of this case and how it affected countless people as secondary victims. In my true crime podcasting journey, I've come to deeply understand the ripples of trauma that violent crime sends out into the world. Of course, the primary victim is always the person that lost their life. And in this case, we have 11 murder victims. But that trauma never ever ends there. It is seen in the immediate family of the victim, in their friends, co-workers and schoolmates. But it is also seen in the police officers that investigate these cases, the journalists that cover these stories, and everyone else that is touched by these moments of seeming madness. In cases where there is one victim, those ripples are more easily traceable. But in this case, if you allow yourself to start really thinking about all of the secondary victims, it becomes almost overwhelming. I think that we all have our own views on journalists in cases like this, and often we can feel like they are almost vulture-like in their circling around a story. But I don't know that we always think about how these people carry these stories around in their heads. For the most part, Journalists are supposed to stay emotionally detached. But I don't think that they would be human if they didn't take at least some of these details home with them. In this case, there were two journalists that were deeply involved in various aspects of the case. Jana Marx was a court reporter when this case came to trial, and you heard her chats about her experiences in earlier episodes. She admitted, of course that this case has far deeper meaning for her than just another story. 
Jana would go on to write a book about this case, the Krugersdorp cult killings, and of course, she narrated the Shomax original documentary, Devilsdorp. I asked Jana when she realised that there was a book in this case and how she started to work on that. As I was sitting in court and I was listening to all of this information, I was also actually reporting directly from court. I just realised, you know, I'm literally touching the tip of the iceberg. Um, I mean, news report is 350, 400, 450 words max long. So I will sit there and I will literally transcribe everything that's being said in court. But I can only use, you know, a few bits and pieces. So I, I was sitting with this enormous amount of information with nowhere to go. <laughs> so I was already thinking, you know, that would actually be great to just get everything out there. But it was actually only when, and it was coincidental, how my paths crossed with the publisher and I had the idea and that resources and we decided, okay, let's do this because everything is there already. So yeah, then I started with a very, very big job. <laughs> Even after all of those days in court and all you know, there were still a lot of gaps because, as we know, in court, they will only present evidence that's necessary to prove a case. So while I was, you know, um, evaluating what I had in the testimony and writing that down, I realized, yeah, there's so many things that I still wanted to know, so many unanswered questions. I started with the court, with the court testimony, and I wrote that story of, from, from the transcripts that I had. From there, I started to ask the questions. You know, I actually just sit back and imagined myself being someone that's never heard about the story before and trying to, and then try to ask the questions that, that people would want to know. And from there, I elaborated on all of that information. I, I spoke to the investigative officer, Captain Ben Boyce, and he assisted a lot on the part of the investigation, how things work, why this, why not, why not that, because even the police, the, the investigation is, uh, is, is almost a book on its own. And after that, I went to the family members and I said, okay, there's still a lot of questions. What happened? What did your loved one tell you? Did you, did you have any idea? Did they have any idea? So then I started to fill the emotional gaps. And then after I was finished with that, I took the police docket. I took the photographs. There were, there were a lot of photographs I worked through. That was quite an emotional process for me as well. And I tried to reconstruct the scenes. I mean, the, you, if you look at photographs for long enough, a long time, then you start to get the idea what, what probably transpired there. Through her research for the book and her reporting of the story, she would become friendly with many of the secondary victims in this case. And, you know, there's always that uh, dispute between Cecilia and Ria. And Cecilia, being the most manipulated that she is, constantly told her parents. I mean, her, her parents visited her at the time when, um, just before and during the killings. They didn't know about that at the time, obviously. But she had the narrative that Ria is doing wrong things. So she literally just blamed Ria for everything. And that's still the narrative that parents have. You talk to them, they'll say, yeah, but Ria did this, Ria did that. So that's just the mass manipulator Cecilia is. She even convinced her parents to believe her narrative. 
went to Rantfontein. I visited them um, at the plot where they stay. And it was a difficult uh, conversation. I mean, you have a mother who just won't agree to what she's hearing in court, who wants to believe in her child's innocence. And I think we really need to respect that even the killers, you know, it's someone's child, someone's daughter. My parents don't want to believe that I can do anything wrong. <laughs> you know, can you imagine? Imagine if, if you see your child get arrested for all of this. And I really had a lot of empathy with her parents. You know, they told me they can't even go to the grocery shop. They literally need to send people to do something as simple as grocery shopping on their behalf. Because suddenly they're not Pit and Mara Brandt anymore. They are now Cecilia's parents. So it's a horrible, horrible, horrible thing. And um, so the mother, uh, Mara Brandt, didn't want to believe what she's hearing and you have Pete Brown who realized, okay, there is more to it, but it's so difficult to grasp. So, so extremely difficult to come to terms with. So that was a very emotional um, visit. They were very kind to me, um, but I really saw two people um, who were quite broken. I don't know a lot of the past. I don't know a lot about the house situation or the living situation. I was little, but the two people I met there, you know, yeah, I did it. They were two broken people. And I mean, obviously, the child's being accused of the most horrific killings that this country has seen in a very long time. You know, there's the, there is the whole stigma around journalism in court. People tend to think that, yeah, you know, you just want to sensationalize this and just want to thrive on our unhappiness, which is obviously not the case if you're a news journalist covering court proceedings. I've spent so, so many days in the company of the family members. It wasn't long for them to actually become more friends. You know, I, I, was, I would wait for certain uh, people in the morning and we will have our coffee and our, or whatever the case will be. So I think after a while... I earned the trust and we just continued a beautiful relationship up until this day. And I think the fact that I actually fought for, you know, a credible version of events that helped my case for the book and also for the production. It was extremely important to me, especially because I've spent so much time with them. And I realized, you know, this is not, this is not family members of nameless victims anymore. I know these people now. I know where they live. We we have coffee. We eat breakfast on Saturdays. I felt almost as if I have like this responsibility to, you know, see to it that this is a legitimate production and the book is a truthful version of events. That's even besides the fact that I'm uh, my personality is I work with facts. That is is how I work and how I do things. But for a production side. Um, it was wonderful to be part in a consultancy role to actually keep tabs on what is the facts that we are presenting here. And is it still, is it, is it still honoring the victims? Is it, is it, are we still honoring the families of the victims? The other journalist we've spoken to in this case is Mariska Kutzer. And I think her connection is far more deeply personal. You heard in the last episode how Mariska was connected to this case in so many ways. The first way was when she discovered that one of the victims of the so-called appointment murders 
was a long-time family friend. Yes, it's Kevin McAlpine. My mother and Kevin's mother was best friends in high school. You know, so the way I understand it, my grandmother said when Kevin's mother fell pregnant with Kevin, she actually came and lived with my mother and my grandmother because, you know, back in the day it was scandal if you fell pregnant at a younger age. You know, I don't even actually know how young she was, but, I mean, that's how far our family ties, you know, go from my mother knowing his mother in high school to the point where when I went to varsity, me and Kevin's sister, you know, we used to hang out together. When you go to varsity and it's, you know, weekends going out, dancing, partying, um, so that's how how far back or how deep the um, connection and the friendship goes um, with regards to Kevin. And that's why I think it got to me so badly is I remember when I was in varsity. So this is even before I was a journalist. And in varsity, I actually studied to become a fashion designer. I never planned to become a journalist at all. But I remember when we would get dressed to go out, you know, I remember Kevin sitting on the couch watching Rappi. You know, I remember always greeting my friend's older brother, you know, um, there at a house. And when you are a journalist, you are always taught to look at a story through a camera. So you must try not to get too emotional because you can't cry over every person, you know. So when you look through the the when you look through a camera, you know, you see a victim. So you're like male, deceased, this is his age, this is the crime committed. You know, you, you get so into writing news. But, I mean, it's something completely different when you stand on a, um, you know, on a scene and you realize that you're, but I know that person in there. I don't know. That, that's where my world started colliding. The next connection was something we haven't spoken about yet and something that wasn't mentioned in the Devil's Dorp documentary either. Marcel and LaRue Stain were the first two members of Electus Perdias to be arrested. But before they were, two other people were arrested. Fabian Luff and Christian Kruger were falsely accused and arrested for the murder series. And this is where the case becomes even more deeply personal for Maruzka, because Fabian is her cousin. Well, Fabian in Krugersdorp, he had quite a reputation, and it's not the best of reputations, right? He would always be caught for goodness know what. If it's not for possession of, let's say, Dacha, it would be um, they were selling, let's say, cables or whatever, let's say petty crimes. But he had a reputation for that. And when the murders happened in Krugersdorp, the police had no idea where to look. They had CCTV footage where they knew that they were looking for white people. And in the parts where Fabian was hanging out and the people, you know, he was dealing with, it's a community that's ridden by drugs. So it is crystal meth, they hang out on the streets, you know, it's that type of lifestyle. And so that is how he actually um, ended up being, you know, let's say a person of interest. So, of course, Fabian Luff and Christian Kruger were not involved in these crimes, and Fabian would eventually successfully sue the state for wrongful arrest and imprisonment. But by this point, Mariska was well and truly sucked in, 
and her family had a huge stake in this case. So when she started meeting with LaRue Stain and eventually fell in love with him, her entire life, both personal and professional, was in chaos. That is just the beginning of the chaos for me because after that, it became an obsession to get the story. So I went through highs and lows and the ends of the earth to try and figure out what is going on here. So I slept, I lived, I breathed the story, you know, and even um, covering the case in court and not even that, um, forming a friendship with LaRue and or a relationship with LaRue and getting to know him and the, the, the prison life, you know, even that um, is a lot to deal with, you know, people only see um, on the surface, but they don't really know what's going on. You know, the my relationship with LaRue has also made me so tired. Like, at some point you give up. You know what? There is a LaRue and there's a Mariska in all of us. There's someone that's trying to survive in all of us and there's someone that will fight beyond everything to stand up, you know, and people shouldn't think it won't happen to them. You know, it's as if I made a public mistake, right? And this public mistake made half of the people judge me, but the other half saw something in me. And that something in me gives me really the extra va-va-voo. You know, I get to things, when I tell people, you know what, I know what it feels like to be written on or written about on the front page of the newspaper. The other secondary victims of this case that I think the documentary brought into stark view are the police officers that worked the case. In the documentary, we saw how one policeman's marriage broke down. His entire life was destroyed by his obsession with solving this case. Because there were so many murder cases in different jurisdictions, there are many police officers that worked these cases at one time or another. This split of responsibility, both in 2012 and the later series of crimes, is possibly one of the reasons that the focus was not put on the group much earlier. Captain Ben Boyson would eventually be tasked with putting all of the pieces together. In the documentary, we saw Ben retiring and the clear emotional turmoil that came with that. But what we didn't hear about was the toll this case took on his health. You know, while investigating this case, Nat, you don't have time to think about yourself and, and your own situation, you know, and you... You can't let emotions sidetrack you. You must investigate this case emotionless. The only time that there was some emotion with me was when I spoke to Joy's um, sister, the one that's in the 90s. You know that that. Uh, but you know, otherwise I, I was very professional and I didn't show any emotion and stuff. But when this case was finished. And I started to speak with the people who, who did the program now that's going to be on TV. You start thinking about situations and stuff. Only then you realize actually what, what you went through. And, um, and then it hits you.
you you understand and yeah you know most of my cases that i investigate in life i, I investigate and when it's finished it's finished and i close the book and i i go on to the next case but this case was so big in the public domain and uh, you know they're making our series about it and stuff like that that they I, i'm i'm always in a situation where i'm dragging back into what happened and 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 stuff like that and then that you know I, also i think because i'm 60 years old now um you know you don't think like a, a 35 year old cop anymore and just doing your job you you know when you get old you get emotional also the reason also why my health was deteriorated at the end of the day i took this case over and i did it by myself there was nobody assisting me the only two people that assisted me at the end of the day was advocate robertson and advocate skitter from the dpp's office even though when we went into the 2012 investigations yeah and then i i started to get sick um because i was training also in the gym um because that's i don't smoke and i don't drink so that's the only way i can get rid of my frustrations i had pneumonia and um i kept on working i had to surf more than 250 sapunas um on people three times on in, in the in this case so and you know what i've learned my lesson in 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 life that can't trust other people to assist you in the correct manner you will give a person a thing to say go and do it and in the day it's not done and then you cross with that person but actually you must be cross with yourself because you on yourself by asking other people to do your work so yeah and um i was very sick and one morning i woke up and i couldn't speak and my wife told me going to the doctor today with your illness or with your food and i said what the hell is wrong with my food you said i'm going to shoot you in your food if you don't go to the doctor today but to the doctor today you will go to the doctor so yeah then i went to the doctor and they immediately put me in hospital yeah and uh, you know actually i brought that on myself because um i was not supposed to train and i was not um supposed to to work the way i worked and um but you know i needed to do it i needed to to see this case through and and also to let these people get what they needed to get and and also for the families you know to for them to to see that you know um the law sometimes work if if you work hard and yeah and because of that um there was lots of stress Uh, but i don't stress I, i i think i don't stress but the doctor said you know in my subconscious you stress so yeah whatever i'm not a doctor so i cannot say that i didn't stress in my subconscious but probably i stressed in my subconscious and um yeah so my health deteriorated but i'm fine now in south africa we are very quick to judge our police force and it is these ripple effects that the public at large don't think about when we talk about how poorly we think our police service performs ben also wanted to share something else that we don't always think about and that is the psychological impact of their work on police officers yeah i've i've investigated a lot of 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 murder cases and also suicides and stuff um 
and you know you go out you investigate you come back and you you cut off um, because if you take this with you you will get insane you know i saw freaking children that's 13 years old that took his father's shotgun and blow his own head off um i i saw very bad things in life um also i was in the reaction unit in the 80s um so if we we were part of the the riots you know that fight riots and stuff but we did other stuff above the riots so you, you know i saw a lot of killings um people burned in front of me in the 80s with tires around their necks and then there's two three five hundred um people doing it and you 10 cops on this side so you know but that stuff you saw you did you come home you cut it off you go on with life um you need to do that otherwise you 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 that's why most of the policemen became alcoholics um they can't cope with this they they start drinking they're getting violent at home with the the their wife and the children um, assaulting them um you know uh, at the end of the day land up in in hospitals and unfortunately in in a country like South Africa we don't have the, the things like in America there's very good um strings uh, that if you come from a crime scene you first before you can go on with the work you go and need to see this shrink and speak to them and only then when those shrinks say listen this guy is now good again to go outside and work you can do that in south africa there's there's not not, not people like that and and the people who work for the police that you that they want to send you to and you need to speak to them they don't keep this also for themselves you know they they spoke to the because they part of the police a commander will come up to them and said listen been went to you because of this and this and this what's the situation so now that person is all forced to to tell the commander what the situation is tomorrow you want to be um promoted then they say no no you cannot be promoted because you've got a a a problem with with anger you've got a anger problem this man needs to know that he can go to a person to go and speak to that person and the trust is there In prior episodes, I mentioned that I wanted to discuss John Barnard's connection to the mayors and why it was so easy for him to be drawn in by Cecilia. John Barnard was a drug addict. He also occasionally sold drugs. This is how he came to be in Cecilia's group. We know that the members of Electus Perdius used drugs together. Even the children were using drugs. This was likely another way that Cecilia controlled people. And Ben had something interesting to tell me about the mayor's murders. We know that John Barnard worked for the mayors, and this is why they ended up becoming victims of the group. But there's another connection too. Yeah, no, they were using drugs um in the house all of them when they spoke to me at the end of the day they were saying they were using drugs even the children were using drugs um the mayor's one child um was buying drugs from them the drug connection goes further as well and it leads us down another interesting path we know from Ria Grunewald's testimony that there were often groups of school children at Cecilia Stein's flat this could very well be due to the drug connection 
but we don't know that for sure, so it's just speculation. But the fact that Cecilia was interacting with a much wider group of people than just those that we saw arrested opens us up to many different possibilities. And Ben feels that, in his opinion, many more cases were solved through these convictions than just the ones we heard about in court. He emphasizes, of course, that connections to Electus Perdius are only ones that he has made himself in his personal capacity, and there is no official determination that they were responsible for other murders too. You know, by, by taking this case at the end of the day, um, I also solved other uh, cases like there was a lawyer and the police ruled it uh, suicide. And at the end of the day, I also started investigating his case to see if there's not a linkage. And at the end of the day, when I, I took the dockets from, from, from the police from Hollisberg, uh, and started investigating it, I saw that it was not a suicide, he was actually killed. Um, he was strangled and stuff like that. So there's other cases that also I worked on and I, I because I thought there was linkages. This um, child also, what you're talking about, he, he was staying next to, to Miranda in the flats. And when he, he, he was found dead, the, at the dam in Krugersdorp with a pipe in his car um, looks like he gassed himself the police ruled it a, a suicide but when I checked the docket and the, and the photos I don't know who did the investigation there or what was the situation there um, but it was very strange for me that the, at that stage the police didn't investigate further on that so it was the same operandi as, as, as what the last killings was. Um, you know, most of the people were drugged and then they were killed. What I saw on the photos and stuff, it's clear that there was more than the suicide, the so-called suicide. Uh, I, I, I personally think that he didn't kill himself, but that's my personal opinion. Something that was very interesting to me was that the young man who was presumed to have committed suicide and who Ben feels may not have was also friends with Mornay Haramsa, the so-called samurai killer. We know that Mornay knew Cecilia Stain too. She'd allegedly counseled him at one stage. Mornay committed his crimes in 2008 a full four years before the first murder that was actually attributed to Cecilia's group. So how long was this woman actually active for? How many people did she really influence? Of course, all of this is pure speculation. And as Ben says, considering another life sentence will not make any difference, it is highly unlikely that any of these cases will ever see a courtroom. For the families of those who believe their loved ones may have been the victims of Cecilia Stain or Electus Perdias, they will never see their day in court. But they may find some solace in the fact that all of those that could possibly have been involved are in prison for a very, 
very long time. Watching the documentary, I wondered why there are still people hiding their identities and living under different names. I wondered what, if anything, they were afraid of. This is what Ben had to say. Um, I don't think at this stage they are afraid anymore. I think at this stage, after the court case and everything like that, they're actually more embarrassed for the public to know their, their real identity. For Ben, the lesson is clear. Yeah, that's one thing I've learned in my 42 years in the police is you trust nobody. Difficult and it's bad going through life like that. But, you know, I saw too much negative stuff in my life of people that were supposed to be good to each other. Uh, and they're not. One of them did stuff to the other one that, you know, you can't trust nobody. Um I always said the only person I trust in life is my wife that I'm, you know, I'm married to. But people sometimes seems to be your friend and seems to want better stuff for you. But at the end of the day, they at behind your back, they are digging a hole for you and you're not knowing it. And trust is part of a discussion I had with Louis Averbach too. I asked Louis if he could speak to the type of impact that this case would have on people for the rest of their lives. Depending on how close the relationship was with the victim, one has to deal with loss. The remaining loved ones or the family members, they now have to deal with the loss of that person. And, and, and dealing with loss, one normally is facing the question of meaning, of the why. People can deal with the fact that, that your loved ones fall ill, maybe develop uh, terminal illnesses and, and, and pass away. People can deal with the fact that there are accidents in life and, and that some people pass away because of that and you lose people. But how do you deal with a senseless act that caused the person's death? something that's so bizarre and so abnormal, you can't say, well, you know, that's life. That, that's what happens. We all have to, to accept that. No, that's not normal. It doesn't happen. It's, it's, it's rare. It's absolutely uh, unacceptable in any society. So the more traumatic the death of the person that you lost, the more traumatic the loss is for you, obviously. And, and, and these people die traumatically. So the sense of loss and the coming to terms with it will obviously be infiltrated by the trauma of either what the victim had or what you as loved one experiences through, the, through your imagination of what the, what the loved one would have experienced uh, having to, to pass away in that manner. And, and that leads to philosophical questions when you have to deal with loss. Why did she choose that one? What if she choose the other one? What, if my, my whole life has changed by a random act of a split second of somebody else. And how do we 
then continue basically living in a basic trust in people and life around us. Some of the most heartbreaking footage in the documentary was when Kezia McAlpine described how, on the night that her husband was murdered, she hid away so that if they couldn't find her to tell her, then maybe it wouldn't be real. I would like to thank Showmax for the opportunity to present this podcast series to you. It has been an amazing journey, and I've met some really fascinating people. Most importantly, though, I think that we have really learned something here. Yes, there are still and always will be unanswered questions. But perhaps now, at least, we have a bit of a better idea how this happened. The members of Electus Perdias are now in jail, where they belong, and they will be there for a very long time. I also hope that this podcast series has helped to move away some of the distractions in this case. Because with every side path and rabbit hole, we were moving further away from what really matters here. The death of 11 people. And so I would like to dedicate this podcast series to the victims and end it off with their names so that that is the last thing ringing in all of our ears and their memories become what really matters. Natasha Berger Joyce Buenzaya Reg Ben Dixon Michaela Valentine Peter Mayer Joan Mayer Jared Jackson Glenn McGregor Anthony Schofield Kevin McAlpine and Handley Latachan Rest gently. <laughs>